As mountains go, it isn't much. Perhaps 2,500 feet above sea level. Maybe 300 feet above the height of the surrounding hills. You wouldn't notice it among the big Adirondack peaks. You certainly wouldn't see it in the Smokies. This mountain doesn't have some long, dramatic spine which pilgrims can climb on their knees. It doesn't have some steep north face where expert climbers can go with their pitons and their rock axes. There are no glaciers and no snowfields on this mountain. There's no lack of oxygen at the top. No Sherpa guides are required. But it's fair to say, my friends, that the mountain that we're going to talk about today looms larger in the consciousness of our world than any other mountain you can name. You can take Kilimanjaro, and I've seen it. Rising above the savannas of Africa with its top always blanketed in snow, you can take Vesuvius or Mount St. Helens, which sometimes rumble to life and spew ash and smoke. You can take Olympus, where the Greek gods supposedly lived. You can even take Mount Fuji, the most climbed mountain of them all. Not a one of them, not a one of them is as important to the world today as the one we call Mount Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Maybe it seizes our imaginations because we really can't say for certainty just where it is. Somewhere on the west side of Jerusalem in the first century, there was a hilltop where Romans frequently executed criminals in the full sight of everyone. Perhaps, as some suggest, it got its name from the skulls of victims that were left exposed to the animals or the elements. One more famous theory has it that the hill itself resembled the shape of a human head. No one knows for sure. Each of the sites proposed for Calvary has its advocates and its detractors. Every one of them can claim some bit of credibility. The fact remains that no one knows for sure on which of several hills on the west side of Jerusalem Jesus suffered and died. Some people sing with great conviction, I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary, but they really can't take you to that hill. That hill far away and that old rugged cross, it's primarily a place in the mind, a place in the heart. Maybe it's better that way. We have enough shrines, I think. We discover that almost everything we know about this particular hill comes from a few scant verses in the books of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And yet, 
Librarians will tell you that uncounted volumes have been written about those few scant verses. We discover that everything we know about the history of this mountain is actually compressed into about six hours on one Friday. And yet that was a day that divided the history of the world in two. Because of what happened on that hill, we date all our realities. No wonder, then, that we can't leave this mountain alone. No wonder that thoughts of Calvary unsettle us, whether we're believers or agnostics, or whether we claim no faith in God at all. It's no wonder that sometimes we're attracted by this story and, and sometimes repelled by it. No wonder that we often find it necessary to go back in the scripture and, and to see what there is to see and to, to hear what there is to hear and to feel what there is to feel. I visited this mountain dozens of times in my imagination. And every time I go, I, I see and hear and feel something different than the last visit. One time, I, I'm caught by the casual cruelty of the Roman guard as they, they strip Jesus of his clothes and then gamble for them right in front of him. But the next time, I see the Roman soldier in an act of kindness, offering Jesus a sedative to ease his pain, a sedative that Jesus refuses, but an act of kindness nonetheless. On one of those visits in my imagination, I, I remember that there were two thieves crucified, one on the left and one on the right, and that both of them, it says, reviled and abused him. And on my next visit, I remember that one of them, just one of them, turned to Jesus at the last moment and was promised paradise. On one trip I hear the words of Jesus ringing in my ears, I thirst. Woman, this is your son. Son, this is your mother. The next time I listen in amazement to the words that the crowd is chanting as they wait for Jesus to die. Matthew tells us in verse 42 of chapter 27 some of what the crowd was chanting on that fateful Friday so long ago. And it really doesn't take any great imagination to guess how they said these words. You can almost feel the sneers. You can see the curled lips. You can hear the venom that would, would taunt a dying man about his weakness and his helplessness. Who does that? He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from his cross now and we will believe in him. 
through the years, we've all come to understand that in that hour of cursing and reviling, the enemies of Jesus actually spoke more truth than they knew. The words that they intended as insults and derision were, in fact, they are, in fact, the glory of the church. He saved others. He cannot save himself. In the moment of atonement, Jesus couldn't save himself and save you and save me. He couldn't do both at the same time. The plan of redemption, the plan that was envisioned in the book of Genesis and unfolded in the book of Exodus and typified in the ceremonies of Leviticus and foreshadowed in the rites of Numbers and reiterated in the book of Deuteronomy, that plan made it clear that in order to save others, he couldn't save himself. That which was their greatest taunt has become his greatest glory. He saved others. He did not save himself. And in that hour of cursing, his enemies spoke another truth. When they said of Jesus, he is the king of the Jews. That's not what the sign above his head said. Pilate had posted in Aramaic and Greek and Latin simply a phrase that said, king of the Jews. But they called him the king of Israel. The king of Israel. Pilate intended to convey only that he was the king of a particular people group with certain bloodlines and certain pedigrees and a certain religious tradition. But in their moment of fury, his enemies said, he is the king of Israel. The Israel of God is always bigger than one people group. Remember what Paul said? Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, and I hope you do, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You are the Israel of God. His enemies were right. Because of his triumph on this mountain, Jesus is king. He's the king of Israel. He's the sacrifice and the salvation of all those who came in faith to that altar of sacrifice in the centuries leading up to his cross. And he's the savior of all of us who look back in faith to that moment of atonement when he died for us. But there was something else his taunters said. And though they hardly met it, the words haunt us today. Let him come down from his cross now, they said, and we will believe in him. Let him come down from his cross, and we will believe in him. They thought that both halves of that curious line were impossibilities. Here he was, bound, impaled by spikes driven through body parts into rough, Cross beams, great gashes at his hips and back, oozed blood and lymphatic fluid. Blood trickled down his face from the lacerations in his scalp. Portions of his muscles were exposed from the cruelty of the whip. 
His eyes were half swollen from the beatings his face had endured. His tongue was already swelling with thirst. There was no way that this man was ever going to come down from that cross. This was a man who wouldn't last the day. And because of that, they thought it was a safe bet that they would never have to believe in him. Unless God intervened, which he showed no signs of doing, this deluded visionary was going to end up on the dustbin of history like so many other would-be messiahs in the past. They thought it was a safe taunt. Low cost. The conditions they had set had no chance of coming true. Let him come down from his cross now and we will believe in him. As I sat in my office recently, thinking about this story, I suddenly heard their words in a new way. And the words had a curiously modern ring to them. In my imagination, I, I saw a different group gathered at the top of Calvary, different than the one that's described in Matthew 27. Gone were the scribes in their somber garb, fingering their phylacteries while their mouths were full of curses. Gone were the Sadducees who for whom this dying Messiah represented a dangerous threat of revival and reform in the country. Gone were the Pharisees, for they saw Jesus as the competitor for the affections of all the religious conservatives in the land. No, I, I saw a different group of people in my imagination gathered at the top of Mount Calvary. A group that looked remarkably like us. There were pastors there and business people there, housewives, car mechanics, engineers, scholars, retirees, university students. But this time, this time the air wasn't filled with, with taunts and reviling and curses, no. This time the lips weren't curled in sneers, no, no. Altogether, it was a respectful group. Relatively quiet, pretty civil, kind of decent. But the one they stared at and the words they said were identically the same. It was still Jesus hanging on that crossbar of contradiction. His face was just as swollen. His back was just as lacerated. His, his breathing was just as labored. And the blood was just as real. But the words... The words that 20 centuries ago had been hurled at him as a taunt and a dare. Now, now those, those words that came from, from us sounded more like a plea, maybe a request. Um, 
let him come down from his cross now, and we will believe in him. Let him come down from his cross now, and we will believe in him. My friends, I tell you this morning that the thing I fear most in the religious world today and the thing I fear most in the Seventh-day Adventist faith today and the thing I fear most in my own spiritual life is the desire to get Jesus to come down from that cross. The thing I fear most among God's people today is a movement toward a crossless Christianity. It may surprise you to hear me say that such a thing is even possible. Oh, I don't mean we'll never come to the point where there are no crosses at the front of churches. Someone will always have a little crucifix on a chain about their neck. At Easter time, we'll, we'll always put up our stylized, sanitized crosses, full, wrapped in purple and white fabrics. Oh, we'll do all those things. What I fear is that the movements afoot in the Christian world today and sometimes in our own faith are taking us away from that real soul-shaking encounter with the cross of Jesus Christ that is the absolute foundation of everything else we believe in. Now, I'm including myself in my complaint this morning. Preachers also preach to themselves. Why is it? Why is it that we so seldom talk about the cross? I got to thinking about it recently. In the last few years, I can count on, on one hand, maybe two, conversations, the discussions, the Bible studies, and the sermons, including the ones I've preached, that were about the cross, about Mount Calvary. And yet, and yet in heaven we're assured it's a theme of endless conversation and, and endless amazement. The book of Revelation pictures all the myriad thousands and ten thousands and ten thousands of thousands. They're all celebrating and rejoicing and discussing and reveling in that story that happened on a Friday afternoon. They know the story of Mount Calvary and they sing about it all the time. As Revelation pictures it, Remember that it's not just the lamb they are celebrating. It's the lamb who was slain that they are celebrating. It's not some cuddly little springtime creature. It's the lamb who gave up his life blood for us that they're singing about. It's the lamb who died in the place of undeserving sinners like me and like you. And yet, we have so little to say about it. Is it because we're, we're somehow embarrassed by all of the blood and the violence of the story? 
Are we afraid that by confessing our faith publicly in the facts of Mount Calvary, we might align ourselves with other faith groups who, who believe things we don't? Maybe some of us in our confusion are tempted to strike a bargain that sounds like this. Um, let him come down from his cross, and we will believe in him. Friends, I know these are hard words to hear. You're going to have to trust me that they are at least as hard to say. But the Apostle Paul warned us 2,000 years ago that in the story of the cross, there's a fundamental contradiction to our usual ways of thinking and believing. The stunning contradiction of the cross means that we're always in danger of pushing that story away from us, pushing it out to the margins of our faith. It makes us profoundly uncomfortable. Paul used words like, stumbling block when he talked about the cross. He called the cross an offense to the natural mind. Paul said that the story of Mount Calvary sounds like foolishness to those whose minds aren't being renewed by the Holy Spirit of God. And to the same degree that we find ourselves shying away from the story of the cross, to that same degree we should be afraid for our own spiritual lives. It really is enlightening for us to talk about the stories and the parables of Jesus. Some of you who know me know that I love to do that. I can easily spend an entire happy hour or ten talking about the ethics of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. We can spend enormous amounts of time detailing for ourselves the ways in which the prophecies spoken by Jesus are, are being fulfilled in our world today. Those are all good things. But my friends, if in all our discussions about Jesus, if in all of our study of Jesus, if in all of our preaching of Jesus, we miss this moment where we come face to face with his cross where the blood ran down for us, then we are missing the vital heart of Christianity and the vital heart of Seventh-day Adventism. I want to put it candidly this morning. If our Christianity is becoming the crossless kind, then it is also becoming the worthless kind. The story of the death of Jesus on Mount Calvary is not an extra. It's not an option. It's not an add-on. It is the central story on which every other story has to be built. Several years ago, actually more than several, 30 now, Back when the evening news was still a fixture of our lives, I was watching NBC one night when I saw images of an elderly man weeping, sobbing, in front of a large crowd gathered in front of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. 
The newscaster did his best with a difficult name. Franciszek Wojanacek. And he gave the kind of one-minute summary of his story that is all the nightly news has time for. Seems that this aging man, now literally bent over with the years, he had come to Rome to honor a man who changed the story of his life. It was 1945, and the place was the Auschwitz concentration camp in Eastern Europe. Franciszek Wojanacek was a, was a native of Poland who had somehow gotten swept up in the destruction of his country at the outbreak of the war, and he had been sentenced to hard labor in the camps, along with thousands of Jews and socialists and intellectuals and patriots. Because the Nazis ruled by terror, they staged ghastly reprisals whenever there was some lack of discipline in the camp. And on this particular day, 10 prisoners had somehow escaped, somehow gotten past the guard towers and the barbed wires and the dogs and, and made their dash to freedom. And so the camp commandant was very clear, 10 men must die to pay for the 10 escapees. And at roll call that morning, the crisp lieutenant simply counted off every tenth man in the cell block that was lined up in formation. He informed them that by the decree of the commandant, they would be starved to death. Voyanacek, he says, heard the counting of the lieutenant as he came down the line. And with a sickening feeling, he realized even before he was pointed at that he was going to be the tenth man. He began to cry, to convulse on the spot. My wife, he said, what will she do? What will my children do? Instantly, a voice behind him spoke up, a voice coming from a, a thin, emaciated man with a, with a faraway look in his eyes. I'll take his place, said the man in the latter row. I don't have any family. I'll take his place. What did you say, prisoner? The lieutenant asked. I said I'll take his place. I don't have any family, said the man who was known to the guards only by his number, but who was known to dozens of fellow inmates as Father Maximilian Kolbe. It wasn't a moment for the lieutenant to betray any emotion. Voyanacek was still convulsing on the ground in sobs. Off you go, said the officer. And with barely a backward glance, Maximilian Colby and the other nine were marched off to an isolation ward to starve to death. 
hunger does its work more quickly when you're already on a starvation diet. Within days, others of the ten began to die, one at a time, held by Father Kolbe, who prayed with them and told them that God had not abandoned them. Finally, after three weeks, only Father Kolbe was still alive. He, something in this indomitable priest clung to life with a tenacity that amazed his guards. Finally, they couldn't stand it any longer, and with an injection of poison, they ended his suffering forever. Boyanacek, however, survived the camps. He survived the war. He was even reunited with his family when, when Poland reappeared on the map of the world. But always, he said, always, he said, he remembered in every day, with every breath, the priest who gave up his life for him. He revered the man who volunteered to take his place simply because that's something Christ would do. No more accurately, that is something that Christ did. My friends, the natural heart is offended by a story like that because it doesn't fit the world's concept of justice. Every man must bear his own burden, they say. No one can take your place. You do the crime, you do the time. Oh, sure, they say, Father Colby was a wonderful guy and all that, but, but don't try to pretend that anyone can really die in someone else's place. A story like that is also foolishness to those who are perishing without the cross because the whole idea of Jesus dying in place of sinful you and sinful me is inconceivable to them. It's irrational to them, and for some of them, it's even irritating. It's impossible, they say. It's impossible that God could put on Jesus the weight of all of our sins. Each of us is individually responsible to God. No one can stand in for another person. But today I tell you, my friends, because the Word of God tells you that it's not only possible that God would appoint the one man, Jesus Christ, to die for all of us, but that it's plausible. And I tell you that it's not only plausible that God would do it, but that it's likely. And I tell you that it's not only likely that God would do it, but that he already did it. God has laid on him, according to Scripture, the iniquity of us all. That's his sovereign right as our creator and our redeemer. He has designated Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, as the one who would finally and completely pay the penalty for your sin and for mine, if only we put our trust in him. And so the only response that's needed today is a simple yes or a simple no. But as Jesus himself says, 
let your yes be yes, or let your no be no. No more of this, well, maybe I will and maybe I won't. Maybe Jesus saves me or maybe I do it by myself. Maybe I'm saved through the blood of the Lamb or maybe I get there by cleaning up my own act. My friends, I hope no one is under the illusion this morning Jesus doesn't force us to accept his sacrifice in our place. Jesus doesn't require you to believe in a story about Mount Calvary. If you insist on bearing the full penalty for what you have done, Jesus will honor your choice. C.S. Lewis put it really well. There are only two kinds of people in the end, he said, just two kinds. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Jesus said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. You know what? He's been doing it here this morning as we've been telling this story. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, working on the minds of everyone within the hearing of my words, each of us is being drawn to climb that hill called Calvary to see what there is to see and to feel what there is to feel and to hear what there is to hear. Ellen White says so beautifully these words, if we do not resist this drawing, we will be led to the foot of the cross in repentance for the sins that crucified the Savior. If we don't resist, we will be drawn to the cross. My friends, I'm praying, praying today, you'll join me at the foot of the cross. I'm praying for the pastors of this church, and I know how to pray for them. Praying for the elders, the deacons, all who serve this church. Praying for the university students who come here to find a little quiet in their lives. And praying for the grandparents and the young parents and all the kids. And praying for the visitors who just walked in the door for the first time this morning and some of you who may be able to remember when this church first opened its doors. Join me at the cross. Join me at the place where the blood ran down. And I hope you'll say to Jesus what I am saying to him today. Lord Jesus, I won't ignore this story. I won't avoid this story. I won't evade this story. I will see you high and lifted up. And I will worship you with all there is within me as my Lord and especially as my Savior. That's my promise to you. I promise. So seal that promise with me. Seal that promise with your blood.